HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following is a public service announcement from Just Food. Help bring live chickens into food challenge communities through your donations to the Just Food City Chicken Project 2011. The City Chicken Project would not be possible without the volunteer hours, donations, large and small, and the vibrant energy and ideas of the communities we work with. Just Food is a nonprofit organization that connects New York City communities and local and urban farmers with the resources and support they need to make fresh, locally grown food accessible to all. To donate, search on kickstarter.com for Just Food and find their City Chicken Project. For more information on Just Food, visit JustFood.org or call 212-645-9880. That's 212-645-9880. Let's keep making New York City a better place to live and eat. Network.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with, and I hopefully won't butcher these names, Kara Eisenpress. Eisenpress. You got it. Yeah. I have cousins with a, like, Ian Price thing going on. I was trying not to say it, but it was starting to come out of the mouth. And Phoebe Lapine. Nailed Great. It. Yeah. yeah I, I saw it. your little video on Amazon, and I'm like, okay, I can get this down. <laughs> I know how to say their names. Um, if you don't know them, you might know. The in the small kitchen cookbook, cookbook which just came out, which we're gonna chat about, or uh, big girl small kitchen, the quarter life chefs. Um, thank you for being on. Uh, you've actually been to the Heritage Radio Networks before for Kathy Irway's Let's Eat In, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But now the book is out. The mm. book is out. Um, it's on shelves. Yeah. And hopefully tables. It's got you traveling around the world, red eye back from the West Coast. Exactly. Just to be on this show, right? We oh, were yeah. in San Francisco and L.A., and yeah. we jetted back for you. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. So That's what I wanted to hear. But let's, let's start from the beginning. I guess you guys have reiterated this many, many a times, you know, your upbringing, your childhood. But how did you two meet? We actually just met in seventh grade. 
middle school, nothing really to do with food. Yeah. Except that we both happened to like to eat it, and we <laughs> baked these cookies together, these oatmeal chocolate chip yeah. cookies, which we made two different ways and had a little bit of a rivalry going. And what was the rivalry? I know one was Joy of Cooking, the other one was Betty Crocker. Who's exactly. who? Exactly. Um, I, Phoebe, was uh, the Joy of Cooking version. But I think the main distinction was I took a regular chocolate chip cookie recipe and added oats, and Kara took a regular oatmeal raisin cookie yeah. recipe and added chocolate chips instead of raisins. Yeah, and secretly, what's your favorite cookie now? Still sticking to your joy of cooking, still sticking oh, to your Oh, I stick to my guns, but yeah. <laughs> um, the BGSK classic chocolate chip yeah. cookies are pretty amazing. Cool. Is that a mashup of the two then? Not exactly. What it is a mashup of is milk and semi-sweet chocolate chip. So we add a little bit of both, and yeah. it makes the cookie awesome. Excellent. So it's, it's just great to hear, looking through the cookbook, which I've been loving, by the way, um, Thank is, you. is a wonderful amalgamation of two different personalities and two different perspectives, which you don't often get in cookbooks. It's usually single subject, single person writing, uh, you know, singular vision. But the way you encompass a lot of people is really you know, inclusive and heartwarming. Awesome. But aside from, you know, starting in seventh grade, having nothing to do with food other than, you know, this oatmeal chocolate chip rivalry, uh, what brought you together, not just as friends, but as food friends? Um, Well, we actually went to college pretty close to one another and socialized a bit over food during the college years. But really, our friends were quote-unquote early foodies, um, though we still don't think of ourselves as such. Um, And we had potlucks all the time. Every time we would come home for Thanksgiving break, we would get together with Tupperware containers full of various, usually vegetarian fare that we would uh, set out on one of our parents' dining room tables. And when we graduated, um, we tried to recreate that, but obviously we're all in our own individual... um, apartments which were less equipped than what we had been used to um, growing up in New York City. And Karen and I um, just kept cooking and we kept talking about it. And so the blog kind of evolved um, when we decided that we should share this conversation with our fellow 20-somethings in hopes that um, they could take something away from it and hopefully be inspired to make cooking an everyday part of their lives too. Yeah. So, I mean, you both grew up in New York, in in the city specifically? We did. We're we're born and bred. I grew up in Riverdale in the Bronx, and Phoebe's an Upper West Sider. Fantastic. So, I mean, there was plenty of fodder. There were plenty of restaurants for, you know, to impact your palates in your cooking. Did you go out to eat a lot? Did you cook at home a lot? Actually, in high school, I mean, as with our families, we cooked at home a lot, but it was a big social activity to uh, go out to Chinese food on the Upper West Side. Yeah. Um, and then as we grew up a little bit more, we, we definitely progressed downtown, and we ate out a lot. Um, I guess we're pretty good experts on the food scene in, in the late 90s yeah. and early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. What, what were places that you went to back then? Well, it's funny, the places that we made actual pilgrimages to, which was anywhere below 14th Street, yeah. which <laughs> seems so far away at the time. Yeah. But um, we had a bunch of vegetarian friends um, in high school, so we were experimenting and eating uh, tofu and tempeh. Uh, pretty early on. So one of the places was actually Angelica's Kitchen Yes, that we would go to. And Republic would be one as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we went to Via Quadrono a lot, which is actually on the Upper East Side, and they make these fantastic paninis. But I almost never go there now, even though it's great. Yeah. yeah. No, it's funny how that kind of paradigm of where you dine shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, Mughlai. Yeah. <laughs> Mughlai Indian on the Upper West. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're all popping in your New head New Year's right Day yeah. tradition. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> a weekly tradition. Yeah. See, I, 
I mean, I used to get H&H bagels from my father used to work in, you know, Manhattan and bring things back. Uh, Zaro's popcorn, those mm. kind of like things at Grand Central that you pick up on the train <laughs> going back up to Westchester. But um, there was a, there, there was a big change from how you dined and cooked with your parents to how you ate in college. Uh, where did you go to college and how was the cafeteria food? Um, I went to Brown, and the cafeteria food uh, left much to be yeah. desired. But you had a good sandwich shop. I almost went to Brown because of Jeff's. Jeff's yeah. actually closed, and it's really sad. Yeah. They might have one location, but the College Hill location yeah. closed. Um, yeah, they had two for Tuesdays and for yeah. pickles, so I was always there. Um, Can't believe I almost went to college on a sandwich. I almost went to college on a carrot cake. Yeah, <laughs> where? <laughs> Um, it was in New Haven, and it didn't have icing on it. At the time, I didn't like cream cheese icing. I don't yeah. know what I was thinking, because I like it now. But yeah. I was so thrilled that they had this great carrot cake without icing. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. I actually went to school at Harvard and Cambridge, yeah. where we also had a good sandwich shop. Um, and the dining hall food was pretty Wait, terrible. which sandwich shop? Darwin's. Darwin's, yes. Darwin's is amazing. Yeah. Darwin. I used to work in Cambridge. Oh, um, nice. So, and cook around there. Yeah. I forgot about that. These things just pop into your head. <laughs> and Bartley's Burger Cottage. Oh, of yeah, course. Where you'd, still, you'd come out just reeking of fries, yeah, no matter best. how long you were in You could almost convince people that you were working there because of <laughs> how much oil was stuck to your clothing. Um, so, in college, did you eat at the cafeterias a lot? Or were you already trying to have these potlucks, dinner parties? Right. I um, didn't attempt to cook in the dorms while I lived there, but I tried to get out of the dorms as quickly as possible. <laughs> really? The micro-fridge wasn't a fantastic device? No, but actually, I, my freshman year, I had a kleptomaniac roommate. She was only a kleptomaniac when it came uh, to food, but she would steal whole pies and cakes <laughs> from the dining hall, yeah. and I'd just open our mini-fridge, and there'd just be these whole pies or cakes, and she wouldn't eat them. She would just take them and yeah. put them in our mini fridge they were just like, artifices they what were are just, you doing yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but eventually i moved off campus um beginning with when i went abroad to rome my junior year and that's actually where i did a lot of cooking because yeah. we were on the euro and um it was a pretty expensive city and even though you could get probably like a four euro um pizza taglia um yeah it was just as economical to go to the markets, which are amazing, oh, they, yeah, and are pick up some great ciabatta and yeah. um, perhaps some store-bought pesto or you know pesto from the farmer's market as well, um, and just throw together a really simple, rustic yeah. lunch. And Kara, outside of Cambridge, did you have some kind of food pilgrimage to another country that... Other than Darwin's. Yeah. Well, yeah. I actually, I hated the, the dorm cooking so much that I, I kind of tried to solve the problem in two different ways. One is I made chocolate bark in the microwave. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's really delicious. Yeah. I'd go to the gourmet food store and I'd get um, chocolate and then some nuts or dried fruit and I'd just melt the chocolate, yeah. mix and, in the fruit. And, and that you recipe have the, micro- yeah, the microwave section. It's in the section. book yeah. with actually that story because um, once post-college I forgot to pay my gas bill. So I had to <laughs> use the microwave again. Um and uh, yeah, so I did that, and then I actually also got some jobs in food. So I worked in the faculty club kitchen, and I did some catering for the houses, um, and it was great. I mean, it was I would sort of like leave my life behind once every few weeks and just jump into this catering um, and cook for four hundred starving students. Yeah, they had yeah, that was quite a catering hall. I've I've been in there before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> college transitioning back. Do you remember the first meal that you cooked for yourself in your new apartments or your new, you know, post-grad life? 
Actually, uh, I moved into my apartment on my birthday, and I was a vegan at the time, so I made vegan chocolate cupcakes yeah. for my roommates, and they were like, thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I moved back in with my parents for six months after college, so I got to... Um, have a slightly easier transition because it did involve occasional meals cooked <laughs> by my mother. But it actually was um, made sharing a space all over again much more difficult because I cooked a lot more when I returned to that kitchen than when I had left. Um, and she's very territorial over her kitchen. So, so. she wasn't happy about you actually cooking for her? The um, well, I don't know that I offered yeah. to cook for yeah. her. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I had friends over and I cooked yeah, for them. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure I did from time to time. But I think once I moved into my new apartment um, in February of the following year, I just made a really simple um, pan-seared chicken with caramelized onions. I loved. I had my my mom's cast iron skillet that she had given me, and a lot of, among other items yeah. that I had um, been handed down. And yeah, I remember just sitting there slowly caramelizing the onions with my roommate and gabbing. It's funny, uh, the, the tools that you acquire from family. It's um, true. That you first start cooking with. I have this really amazing, like, uh, yellow Donsk set of Dutch ovens for my grandma, and I just can't not cook in them, you know, every winter. Even if I don't want stew, stew's happening just because I love those yeah, know, bowls so much. I yeah. have a uh, Le Creuset yeah. uh, Dutch oven that I thought was my grandmother's and i think i say in the book that it was my grandmother's but i was recently corrected by my mother yeah <laughs> in fact the story is even better is something that um my grandmother gave to my mother when she moved into her very first apartment as a 20 something she got a whole set of the the flame colored yeah the cruises yeah it's pretty awesome that you know in college you don't have these wares and then you right. start collecting these things. And you stop being so makeshift. Yeah, you start yeah. being a little more deliberate. Yeah. Um, and then you start putting a covet list together of all these new tools and uh, objects that you want. But what's great, too, about your book, um, not to... Oh, we're not FCC regulated, so I can say this. Not to blow smoke up your ass. Um, <laughs> is how smart the pantry and the tool section is. And we'll get to that as well. I mean, you don't need much to make these amazing meals. And I think people overwrightly think sometimes that to make this, you know, dinner party, this picnic, that you need a lot. But you show how little you need, uh, be it space, time, or money, to right. make these kind of wondrous meals. Um, but the impetus, this dinner party that you made uh, the Manchurian cauliflower for, <laughs> uh, your friend Jordana's 20 fourth birthday um why did you decide to start the blog there with so jordana asked us to help her think of a an idea for a birthday party I, she was my roommate at the time and she's one of that group of foodie friends from high school and i was sort of you know brainstorming with her what can you do in the city and it's always hard to have a big birthday party out because it's just expensive um and so i uh, volunteered phoebe to help <laughs> cook a cocktail party for 40 or 50 people um, at Jordana's parents' house. So it meant that we could keep the cost low um, and, you know, just man labor, Phoebe and me. And we cooked this great meal. I mean, we had the Manchurian cauliflower. We had a couple kinds of crostini. We had cupcakes. We had dips. Um, and it went over really, really well. Everybody came. They ate a ton. It wasn't exactly a dinner party. It was more of a hearty cocktail party. So there was a mingling. <laughs> I don't mind drinking. the drink first, you know, food second kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and as we were cleaning up, we were standing there and just talking amongst ourselves. And it occurred to us that not only had 
we had a good time at the party, but we'd had a really good time cooking for the party. Um, and then a few weeks later, Phoebe had this monumental conversation with her cousin at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't know how monumental. It was yeah. more like really angsty on my side and like really annoyed on her side and just like, well, if you don't like your job, do something yeah. about it. And I was like, okay, yeah. I will. And then the next day, Kara found a little email in her inbox. That so said, it just said blog. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a domain name. Yeah. <laughs> Please enter your recipes for the first post. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what were you doing prior? What kind of job? I mean, um, I took a, a marketing position. It was a, like a training program of sorts at a French beauty company and ended up um, designing women's fragrances for Ralph Lauren, yeah. which seemed, you know, kind of out of left yeah. field. And you're like, of... can you make it smell like roast chicken? Yeah. Caramelized <laughs> onions. <laughs> yeah, I was really in tune with that. Sense. Yeah. I need yeah. to, you know, get back to the taste part yeah. of things. But you were working in a kind of publishing I was I was an editorial assistant um for fiction and nonfiction. I think my boss really had his eye on on trying to buy something culinary yeah he didn't get around to it while I was there yeah yeah so the mashup wasn't you know your necessary professions but this long instilled and long loved uh you know thing about food uh, and right. first blog post still up yes still up it's about Jordana's party um, but it's funny because we said we started the blog um, you know thank the day after Thanksgiving in November 2008 but we didn't really like start the blog yeah. until probably January of that year because we took a long time talking about it <laughs> and exactly what we wanted it to be and what the greater categories were for our specific demographic and being sure to really brand the site and ourselves from the beginning and that all totally paid off I mean the categories being cooking for one cooking for others potluck parties and working with what you have have pretty much directly translated into um, how we organize the book with the exception of cooking for others becoming um, the different types of that being cocktail parties um, potluck parties was its own thing and then dinner parties dating yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) well it's funny you say forethought in a sense uh that so many food blogs are out there today that just you know what i had for lunch and you know here's a recipe but doesn't really didactically kind of break down into categories into genres into a model and we we did talk about we were trying not to be didactic (laughs) but you know we were really trying to lead by life example so when we said this is what we had for lunch we sort of had a reason for why this was such a great lunch for a 20 something um and at the beginning, we really were just posting completely based on what we cooked for ourselves and our friends. Um, and now we are maybe a little more didactic. Yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. don't kill us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to get back to Manchurian cauliflower. Uh, not that you want this as your signature dish, but <laughs> it's become, obviously, one of the many signature dishes that you have in your cookbook and in your repertoire. Um, what exactly is it? Why is it Manchurian? It's um, actually also not our recipe. Yeah. So... <laughs> In addition to being kind of annoying to make, that's the other reason why it's not in our book. Yeah. Um, it actually comes from Suvir, the chef of Devi oh, Restaurant. Suvir Saran, who, yeah. Yes, who was recently on Top Chef Masters. And it's it's pretty basic ingredient list-wise. It's just cauliflower tossed with um, some cornstarch and fried. And then the sauce is actually, it tastes really exotic, but it is ketchup <laughs> cayenne pepper and garlic yeah and that's it yeah that's fin- so that is in your repertoire but what are your new signature dishes in your new 
you know, post-grad life? Well, two of them, or one of them, um, was on the menu as well um, at Jordana's birthday, and that's crostini. We make all different types of crostini because the toppings can be fairly inexpensive, and more importantly, you can stretch them really far by um, slicing a baguette into 30 (laughs) to 40 pieces um, and just thrown on the topping yeah i love the edible vehicle fill them up give them a little bit of taste little carbs yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> another good one is stews like you're forced to make in yeah. the winter um so you know any yeah, meat. force is the wrong word like <laughs> humbly love to make yeah. in the winter yeah. yeah that's only that's pretty much the only sad thing about summer eating is you got to put stews on hold not if you have a good air conditioner i don't yeah <laughs> that's the next thing to invest for yeah. <laughs> right that should go on our equipment yeah list. yeah Big AC for stews during the summer. Um, We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the pantry, the tools that make Big Girl Small Kitchen. You're listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Sunday at 4.30 p.m., tune in to Burning Down the House. Architecture is the laser focus of Burning Down the House, a weekly discourse on all things built, destroyed, admired, and despised. Each week, Curtis B. Wayne, your host, invites a posse of authors, critics, builders, designers, and other architecture fiends to reflect on various topics related to perhaps the most functional of all art forms. Again, that's every Sunday at 4.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with the ladies of Big Girl Small Kitchen, authors of In the Small Kitchen Cookbook, Carrie Eisen Press, and Phoebe Lapine. Was I right that time? Kara. Kara, crap. Close. That, I should at least have a drop that says everyone's names jack so i don't have to do it anymore <laughs> next time um manchurian cauliflower crostini what do you need for these kind of things in your pantry in your toolbox um pretty much just that dutch oven that yeah. uh hopefully you were gifted by a family member because yeah. they can be pretty pricey but we really think that they're worth it because um, you'll end up saving um money and space um just in that you won't have to buy any of the other pots or pans it takes to compensate for the Dutch oven's many functions. Uh, Are you sure this isn't just all a ploy for not doing dishes? Oh, these one-pot meals, yeah. (laughs) We do so many dishes, you have no idea. (laughs) Um, You also need um, some good stuff that can go in the oven, a baking sheet, um, and then something with a bit higher rim. So, you know, like a baking dish that you can make a casserole in or brownies. Yeah. Or a cast iron skillet works for both of those as well. And it's pretty multi-purpose. Mm, it's good exercise lifting those exactly. things too. Yeah. So, I mean, that's it. That's that's a pretty 
excellent bare minimum. It is, plus a cutting board and a decent chef's knife. And yeah. you're really good to go. You don't need a ton of yeah. stuff. But isn't it amazing when you see people get married and put a registry and they want a gravy spoon or a gravy <laughs> boat, as it were, a truffle spoon and all this kind of extraneous wares. And then you realize all you need is a really damn good Dutch oven and a cookbook. Absolutely. My... Um friend recently had a shower and it was alcohol themed so that yeah. she wouldn't be receiving lots of gifts like that yeah yeah <laughs> she was like i have a wine rack and you guys can give me things to put in it yeah i i never knew that you could do a registry at liquor stores yeah so, <laughs> i don't you know, think she did yeah let us be one day it's going to be hundreds of balls of campari coming my way <laughs> <laughs> nothing else um and actually our um equipment section is called the ladle and other avoidable equipment yeah. because we say that you can just use a one cup measure instead of a ladle yeah what other things have you eliminated from the kitchen? Well, we say you can eliminate a rolling pin. Um, I actually have one. It was <laughs> yeah, a gift. Yeah. Um, and you can just use a wine bottle to roll out your, your pie dough. Yeah. So that's a good one. Um, I think neither of us had a whisk for a while. We would just use two forks together. <laughs> yeah. That worked. Yeah. But I love the wine bottle, the, the craftiness of that. It's... You know, in, in school, too, I used tin cans as a cookie cutter, as a biscuit cutter, nice. as uh, a sandwich mold. Uh, you put a whole bunch of pieces of bread and stack them, and you have, like, a terrine of the sandwich, a mifue of the sandwich. Wow. But, uh, yeah, really, really poor. Um, <laughs> but it kind of leads into ingredients to your pantry. Um, and you were speaking of one of the best cheap staple ingredients is dried beans. Or fresh beans. And I used all these bean cans for years to make food. I don't know if everything tasted or smelled like beans. No one told me otherwise. But. Well, back to the equipment. Yeah. We also say that if you really need a bare minimum, all you need is a can opener and a wine opener. And there's a meal right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how often do you actually just eat from a can and drink a bottle of wine? Never. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but if you cut up an onion and you saute it and you add a little bit of cumin and yeah. then you put in the can of black beans, some yeah. salt and heat it up, that's a totally legit dinner. I agree. I agree. And that may be my dinner tonight. Um, ingredients, tools. Ingredient wise, I mean, you can deal with, I mean, it's such a short page. I was kind of bespectacled to see, you know, a couple dozen things there. What are your core ingredients in your pantry that you think are must-haves? Uh, we say pasta and a can of tomatoes, whole, diced, whatever, um, because then some sort of spaghetti and tomato sauce base is always there for you. Um, but really, all a lot of the basic carbs, rice, any type, um, at least one or two types of beans, canned or dried, um, are a lot of really great bases. And then... For the fridge, eggs are a must. Yeah. Yeah, and um, loaf of bread, um, a kind of cheese, maybe two, some parm. Um, if you're a cheese lover, um, that'll get you a bunch of meals. Yeah. And we use occasionally some frozen vegetables. We have a sweet pea crostini that we make from basically a bag of frozen peas. So if you've got that in your freezer and friends coming over, you know. Whip it up. You don't have to shell easy. them. Yeah. Exactly. Um, what I also love is one of the recipes, the saddest pantry pasta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you don't necessarily have that tomato. I mean, uh, you can break it down to it's real bare essential minimums. Right. Exactly. Yeah. What is the saddest meal you ever made? For me, it was that one. It was basically <laughs> I was going to work and I wanted to pack my lunch because I was really good about that sort of thing. Yeah. And 
all I had were these dates that were left over from making, I don't know, maybe scones, maybe some chicken dish that uses dates, and they were really dry and brittle. <laughs> so I put them in with the pasta yeah. when I cooked it. And I think I added some garlic and maybe some coriander seeds. Yeah. I don't know. And then I ate at room temperature, so it was almost like a pasta salad. Yeah. And it wasn't at all bad, but it was just so minimal and so brown, you yeah. know? The, Sad the, looking. The monotone dishes, yeah. I've, yeah. I've dealt with many of those. And what what do you think is the saddest meal that you've had to cook for yourself, be it, you know, relevant to space, time, money? Um, well, actually, the first chapter in our Cooking for One section, I talk about really the summer that I learned how to cook. And I did so by being left alone in my parents' apartment to my own devices with no allowance and, well, allowance, but minimal allowance. And I was forced to cook my way through my mother's pantry. And my mother had, she was a health nut, so there were a lot of obscure things in there that maybe are mainstream today, but um, I had no idea what millet was back then or really quinoa either. Um, And I ended up kind of resorting eventually once I had gone through some of the frozen turkey burgers and such to um, just frozen peas and white wine and butter. Um, Luckily, they had a wine pantry as well <laughs> maybe had a glass here there. Yeah. Thing, yeah. but um a little splash for the food the white wine the and peas like seems like kind of a a sad bowl but it's actually really delicious probably should be paired with something else but um yeah for a sad pantry dinner that's, that's not too bad it's, it's interesting that you note uh millet and quinoa um because you do add a couple of these i wouldn't call them you know esoteric ingredients now but to someone in college uh you never see those things. Rarely do you see those kind of grains. Um, right. What was your first introduction to that kind of food um, outside of college, you cooking it for yourself? Well, it came back to Peter Burley, who opened Angelica Kitchen originally. We loved his cookbook, The Modern Vegetarian yeah. Kitchen. We all had it in high school. And there were a few baked tofu recipes we were obsessed with. This one with dill on top that our friend's dad would make for us after field hockey games. And you should have seen us down this tofu. It was, <laughs> was an supposed obsession. to be oranges or something like that. And you guys are eating tofu on the <laughs> yeah. field. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody said we were normal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, I mean, he had some great recipes with seaweed, with quinoa, um, with dried beans. These actually dried bean stews. Um, and we cooked a lot from that book. And I think that some of our vegetarian cooking has its roots in there, for sure. Yeah. And do you feel like vegetarians at that age end up being um, better chefs? Because they explore a lot of alternatives other than just meat as protein to, you know, fulfill themselves. That's interesting. I mean, we both kind of cooked vegetarian mostly. Mm -hmm. I didn't even really try my hand at protein, I don't think, until that summer when I found some in the freezer. Um, (laughs) And it's so cheap. I mean, that's what we always come back to now, is that if we're going to host a dinner party, we can get away with spending 20 bucks for vegetarian food or 50 bucks for meat. Yeah, yeah. And having a carb as the base is always the key to that as well. And so if you start to experiment with some more interesting grains, um, your friends won't get bored with you. Yeah. Cooking for one versus dinner parties, because you have both those chapters in the book. What do you think is the biggest difference other than obviously the numbers? How do you focus on cooking for yourself versus cooking for others? When you cook for yourself, it's a lot about curating what you already have. I mean, you might go shopping once a week, but you're not going to run out to the supermarket most of the time and get every ingredient you need for just a humble lunch for yourself. 
Um, so you turn to what's in the fridge. Maybe you have some potatoes. Maybe you have bread for a grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, that's totally solid yeah. brunch or lunch or dinner right there. And I think when we have dinner parties, even though we definitely always have a stock pantry, usually involves a run to the store. You've got to get, you know, the main event. Yeah, yeah. And dinner party leftovers make great lunches for one. Definitely. With a fried egg on top. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with an actual fried egg or are you using that as an expression? No. Yeah. No, with an actual fried egg. Gotcha. In fact, like some of the same humble ingredients can be used for dinner parties, but then it becomes all about the execution. You wouldn't want to have um, to fry six eggs. Um, another humble cooking for one staple of mine is, you know, just a regular old quesadilla pan fried on the stove because um, tortillas last for a really long time. And sometimes I'll make, you know, tortillas, uh, quesadillas for a dinner party, but I'll probably bake them in the oven just because I don't want to stand there. Yeah, I am making your spinach pie quesadilla soon. Oh, good. Yeah, I looked at that, and I don't know what it is about spinach pie mixture that I love so much. Um, And sometimes I make it and I eat it before I actually get into (laughs) phyllo, but I hate phyllo dough. Yeah, it's such a pain. Yeah, such a pain in the ass. I love the after effect, but I don't like all the work into it. Right. Which is my wonderful segue into tasks in the kitchen, (laughs) techniques that you guys love and you hate. I used to hate chopping garlic. I used to make my little sister do it. I was like, Katie, you chop the garlic. Yeah. I'll be over here. Yeah, one of those little sisters whose fingers always smell the uh-huh. <laughs> Are there a lot of those? Oh, there's tons. Every little sister <laughs> smells like garlic. Yeah. I've learned to like it, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to really hate de-leafing herbs. I actually still hate it. So luckily, it's a pretty remedial task to dole out to whoever is sitting in your living room or on your um, kitchen island or countertop. Yeah. So My I mean, boyfriend does that a lot. <laughs> I, I like doling out. Yeah, I hate the whole garlic thing too. Until I got one of those rollers, and they magically work. Oh wow! Yeah, it's it's like a plastic tube that my girlfriend's mother gave me. And you and, endorse this? Yes, and I'm adamant about those kind of kitchen tools. Like I don't want them. I don't want more stuff for my kitchen. And when this came, it's been a game changer. Huh. An absolute game changer. I eat wow. garlic like every day just because it's so simple. <laughs> and now your girlfriend hates you for eating all that garlic. No, no. She, she <laughs> hates it too. The, the ease, I think it's the task of actually having to deal with it mm-hmm. that ends up being more oppressive than the taste and the smell and all the etc. So, That's awesome. Yes. Uh, if whoever makes that, here's uh, you know me endorsing this, I wouldn't mind an endorsement back garlic rollers on the food scene um so all these tasks that uh you like or hate what are your favorite meals favorite dishes from the cookbook to actually uh, make for yourselves or larger parties um we're going to be talking probably a lot about stews or baked meat yeah. dishes again but um, it's summertime i mean for a picnic let's think outdoors oh, for a yeah all right we have this peanut sauce that we call bgsk mm. peanut sauce named after us and um, we just toss it sometimes on those really fat udon noodles that we get fresh. But you can also just do it on spaghetti. And it's delicious. It's yeah. It's a little bit like the sesame noodles you get in a Chinese restaurant. But it's kind of unexpected. And you can add some vegetables if it's summer. And do you just make a big bucket of that? Keep it in the fridge? I sometimes do. And then it makes a great lunch for one over rice yeah. or noodles. That's so smart. I don't know why I always make it to order. I'm like, I'm going to make the noodles and the sauce at the same time. You just make a bucket of sauce. Yeah, it lasts a long time, too. And you can even put it on, like, grilled chicken. It's yummy. It's like a saute. Yeah. So you're living in this mecca of food, New York, Brooklyn. What inspires you, be it restaurants, shops, markets? Where do you go to draw new dishes from? 
Um, I still eat out occasionally, um, especially like a lot of Asian cuisines that um, I don't necessarily think to whip together an easy staple from all the time at home. But um, we actually have a chapter in the book called The Takeout Lover's Dilemma. And it's been, we've had a fun time, you know, since starting the site, figuring out creative ways to um, reimagine some of the classic ethnic dishes in our own homes. And really, sometimes it's just a matter of going to Chinatown and picking up one or two more condiments um, and then having them on hand, you know, for eternity. Yeah. yeah. So where do you go out to eat in Chinatown otherwise? Um... Well, I live in Prospect Heights, so we have a really good restaurant scene there. Um, I go to Bark more than I'd like to admit because their <laughs> onion rings are amazing. Yeah, yeah, they're good fryers. But that's sort of the opposite of inspiration because just because they make good onion rings, I'm not going to eat them at home. I'm just going to go there yeah, and yeah. eat their onion rings. Yeah. Um, We're so, also, sorry. No, go ahead. Kind of obsessed with Numpong, the um, banh mi oh, joint near yeah. Union Square. And that's actually something that I've been trying to mess around with in my kitchen because really, like, on me, you just take a baguette, some pickled radishes and carrots, and you can create any sort of quote unquote bun me. Oh, yeah, like yeah. different types of mayo. So, I've actually, with a version of the peanut sauce, um, done a chicken saute bun me. And really, I mean, those garnishes make so many different things delicious, so you can get creative with it. Yeah, I made a bun meat so once. Ooh, wow. quite fantastic! Yum, yeah, yeah. So, and I had bun me yesterday. It's following me, those bombies. Delicious. Not, not a bad sandwich to be stalked by. <laughs> next project, next books. I know you're up for doing a lot of things. We are. So we've been working on updating our site ever since we got the book deal. And in January, we relaunched. And we've got this sort of big, comprehensive, beautiful site now that has all kinds of resources for the quarter-life cook, or honestly, for any cook. Yeah. And then the newest venture is a college little sister site. Um I don't know if we can ask them to chop our garlic, but yeah. we might try. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we have actually um, over 15 college students right now who are contributing. And we've made it through, you know, a, a full semester thus far. And we have a, another team of writers coming on um, on board in the fall once we're back to school. So that's just going to continue to evolve. And we're really excited about um, where that will go. So thematically, is it about cooking in college or what? college kids eat it's really for and by college students so we're trying to run the gamut from the kid who's living in a dorm and trying to figure out how to eat well on a meal plan to the senior who's living in an off-campus house and really has the ability to cook but is also on a student schedule and a student's budget yeah and it's also i mean we don't review a lot of products on our site because we kind of try and talk more about the from scratch home cooking side of things but I know I definitely ate a lot more types of, you know, pirate's booty and popcorn <laughs> and chips when I was in college. So it'll be some of some comparisons like that, really just um, covering the subjects that college kids who are obsessed with food would want to talk about and learn more about. Because um, out there right now, there are some great college lifestyle sites, but there's no one site that deals exclusively with all this, all sides of food. Yeah. I mean, was there a game changer of a meal or a, a dish during college that made you realize, I have to eat better? And I don't mean dietary, but just like, I need better food. I can't just eat this crap anymore. For me, it was the summer after freshman year. I came back home to the city and I remember eating a lot of salads from just salad and chopped and home cooking. And I was like, oh man, I miss this. Yeah. 
Why do you think it is around collegiate towns it doesn't uh, inspire better cuisine? I think in part um, because there's so much variety at the dining hall, and when you have that at your fingertips, no matter how bad all the options are, it just becomes a convenience thing, and it's hard to get around. And of course, like financially, a lot of people's parents subsidize um, the meal the meal plan that comes from college um, instead of you know leaving their kids to their own devices. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what would happen? Yeah, but I mean, think of your cookbook. Imagine giving that to a college kid, eliminating the meal plan, and teaching them that. You know, teaching them these skills. Then um, probably more cost effective. For sure, and I think it's a really good use of downtime at college. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot of free time between um, drinking and going to school, so yeah. you might as well cook. I was going to say, don't, your parents might be listening. Don't admit <laughs> to that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a funny thing. I don't think a lot of college kids actually start cooking in college. They always wait till after, but it's a wonderful time to explore. You're meeting new friends. Dinner parties are a great way for new introductions. and Yeah, I think once you have a venue for dinner parties, it becomes a lot of fun. Um, it's really hard if you're really living in a dorm for four years, too, um, unless your dorm is owned by NYU, and it's basically just like one of our apartments, but bigger. Better, better yeah. than our apartments. <laughs> but yeah. bigger and better. Um, yeah, I think once, once you can integrate the social life side of things um, into cooking, it becomes just an everyday part of life like it would after college excellent and what did you have for breakfast lunch dinner what's coming up today yeah um well lunch i kind of know we're gonna have pizzas at roberta's (laughs) well i had an appetizer i had ginger snaps with milk yeah yes we were back at kara's had some ginger snaps (laughs) excellent but do you look forwards like that saying i'm cooking this for dinner tonight i'm cooking this for breakfast tomorrow do you kind of plan out your week as to you know what you want to eat and cook Definitely. Um, We've been traveling a lot this past week, so um, our refrigerators are a little bit emptier than usual. Um, So we've been resorting to some humble things, I think, since we got home, but definitely we're planners. Where were you? Just uh, San Francisco, LA? Exactly. Where did you eat while you were out in West? Uh, We ate great food. We we hit the food trucks immediately after we arrived in LA. So I went to a nacho truck that was brand new, and I think Phoebe had... Uh, tacos, and then yeah, we went I to think the it was Nom one of the Nom Korean truck. barbecue tacos. Yeah. The Nom Nom truck, um, which is Vietnamese tacos, so yeah. it was like banh mi on a taco. Mm-hmm. That was bad. pretty good. Yeah. They also had regular banh mi. Um, Ate a lot of Mexican in San Francisco. I miss it so Papalote, much. Papalote, yeah. oh. La Taqueria. Love their hot sauce, yes. And then our last meal was in Sausalito at a fish place on the water, and we went home very, very full. Yeah. So where do you go from here, Uh, Brooklyn, Manhattan? Do you try to replicate that Mexican cuisine that you can't necessarily find? Definitely. Uh, We cook, actually, we make a lot of tacos, um, whether or not they're authentic, who knows. It's, again, a great um, platform, as the L.A. food trucks have discovered, for playing around with different uh, ethnic influences and combinations. So next book, a lot more ethnic food. Maybe. Maybe. Find it on the site, though. Is, is there a next book? Fingers crossed. I think there will be. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, you've got my vote. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Yeah. And websites, Big Girls, Small Kitchen. Yes, and Small Kitchen College. Small Kitchen College. All you collegiates listening to this show, check it out. Eat better. 
Thanks for being on again. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Thank you to Just Food for sponsoring their City Chicken Project and Jack Inslee for producing engineering. We'll have you back here next week, 3 p.m. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. All of the trade papers are just buzzing with the information that Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, has decided that he is only going to eat food that he himself has killed, as in proteins. So uh, thus far, he's um, killed a goat, a pig, a chicken, and some fish. But he's going to start hunting, he says, so that he can, you know, basically be more mindful of what he is putting in his mouth and into his body. And um, to quote a CNN Money article, he says, This year, my personal challenge is around being thankful for the food I have to eat. I think many people forget that a living being has to die for you to eat meat. So my goal revolves around not letting myself forget that and being thankful for what I have. This year, I've basically become a vegetarian since the only meat I'm going to eat is from animals I've killed myself. And thus far, this has been a good experience. I'm eating a lot healthier foods, and I've learned a lot more about sustainable farming and the raising of animals. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Keefer. Check out a small clip of Chef Smarty Pants, a.k.a. Erica Wides, talking about radishes on her show, Why We Cook. Those supermarket radishes were like that. They were all heat and no flavor and woody and tough, and they were always kind of beat up and buggy looking, and they looked like crap. I don't understand why they were sold. They were in that plastic bag all sealed up for like six months. Why buy them? We always put them into our salad growing up, and I would just pick them out. And my mom still buys them. She still buys those bags. To me, those bags of radishes are like the ultimate symbol of industrial produce. They're grown for size and for color, but they taste like balls of wood dipped in nail polish remover. I don't understand why people would eat them. So I never understood the appeal of the radish until... Want to hear more? Tune in live to Why We Cook every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m., where you can find all the old shows on our archives. Also, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. Thanks for listening.